Ever wondered what's driving that magnetic pull between consumers and banks? Or even pondered why banking sector is the beating heart of our global economy? Well, today we're diving in deep into those waters, and trust us, it's not a shallow paddle. Welcome to an episode of the Dapper Dollars podcast, where we answer your finance questions, but a bit with style. I'm Anir Bon, and we also have George as your host for the show. So George, what are we getting into today? Well, with the global banking assets reaching a staggering $124 trillion in 2019, the banking sector isn't just a bunch of brick buildings with vault, it's actually the beating heart of our global economy. So if you ever found yourself sipping your money coffee or tea and pondering, what is driving that magnetic pull between consumers and banks? Well, today is your lucky day. You did want to stay tuned for this episode. Well, before we introduce our guest for today, we want you to like this episode, subscribe to our podcast. That would help the algorithm boost our channel to other viewers just like yourself. So Anirban, who are we chatting with today? Yeah. So today our guest is a best-selling author, award-winning financial content creator, speaker, and a TV personality. His journey truly represents the Drake's lyrics, started from the bottom, now we're here. From foster care to the executive team of a Fortune 100 company, he overcame homelessness and gained expertise as a qualified financial advisor and mortgage advisor. He has held pivotal roles at major financial institutions like NatWest, RBS, MetLife, and many other notable institutions. He is dedicated to empowering ordinary people to achieve financial security through positive habits. Today, we have the one and only Peter Komalafe. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And um, thanks for the introduction as well. That's great. Thank you. Absolutely. So as you know, we like to start our episode with that fun icebreaker question. But today, we're going to do it a bit differently. We'll hit you with rapid fire questions just so we can gauge where you align as a finance enthusiast. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready for that. Let's go. Okay. Gold or Bitcoin? <sighs> gold or Bitcoin? I'm going to go gold. I would, I, would, okay. I would like to have both. But since I can't have both, I'm going to go gold. Um, I believe that Bitcoin is obviously a great thing. The technology behind it, the blockchain, I don't think we're truly aware of the limits and the potential that it has. But because I have to choose one, I'm going to choose gold. Okay. Cash or cashless? It's kind of going back to what you were saying. Yeah. Um, cashless. Cashless because that's where the world is going. Okay. Bull market or bear market? That's a little different here. Oh, bear market, man. That's where that's where all the gossip nice. and all the fun nice. happens, right? <laughs> People make money in the bull market and get, you know, kind of they get complacent, you know? The fun like, happens like in the that. in the in the bear market. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant answers, mate. Uh so so Peter, I'll just kind of I'll go right into it now. Um so you have a podcast called The Conversation of Money and a YouTube channel that has amassed over two point five million views since twenty twenty. Um which has led to features on Channel 5 News, Lorraine, Sky News, and so much more. Uh, so for those who are sort of new to your expertise, uh, could you briefly share your financial journey and your rise in the industry? Okay, yeah. So I think first and foremost, my journey into the financial world was completely and utterly a mistake. It wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, it just so happened that, you know, many years ago, uh, I was... I was on benefits here in the UK and part of the requirement when you're on benefits is to show your willingness to apply for jobs. And uh, you used to have an advisor that would sit down with you, run you through a list of jobs to apply for, and then help you apply for those jobs and prepare for the interview. One of them just happened to be in a in a bank. Um, and I was very, very reluctant to go because I, I was in debt at the time. 
I absconded from a lot of debt that I owed a lot of banks. And I was told that unless I went for this interview, I was going to be taken off benefits. So I didn't really have a choice. So me being me back then, I didn't think that I was ever going to be good enough to work in in a bank. I tried to self-sabotage it as much as possible. I rocked up in jeans, trainers, leather jacket, and just tried to bomb it. <laughs> and somehow the lady who interviewed me, a lady called Jenny Berry, she got me speaking, she got me talking, and she goes, my customers are going to love you. And I was like, mm, yeah, but you'll do your credit checks and you'll realize that I'm in debt and I, I can't be trusted with other people's money. I don't know what she did, uh, but we st- I started uh, my, my first job as a cashier. And through that, I worked through retail banking into customer-facing roles. And then uh, I moved from retail into corporate banking. So that's where you start working with businesses, small to medium-sized enterprises. And then finally in 2012, I moved into wealth management uh, in London, in Kenai Wharf. And in that specific role was for MetLife, an American company, very, very big, big company. Started there um, as a telephone boy on about £28,000 a year, which for 2012 was... Uh, okay money you could just about get by in london with london rents um and i spent five wonderful years there and went from telephone boy to, to being on the executive team by the time i left five years later so and that kind of is the culmination of me being qualified as a as a financial advisor me then leaving to be to advise people properly uh, and manage people's money and then in 2020 i started conversation of money and really i've been the beneficiary of circumstance in that instance because little did i know in 2020 when i uploaded my first podcast in video in the january that covid was going to happen in the march and the world was going to go into lockdown and i kind of had a captive audience uh, from that and uh, it's it's spiraled into tv and books and, and stuff Oh, brilliant. So what would Peter now tell Peter in the past? Oh man, listen, I, I get asked this question all the time and my my answer is, is, is the same every time. I was so uptight when I was younger, man. I, like when I was 19, 20, 21, I was so uptight. I was so angry. Uh, and, and part of that is because, you know, I was homeless when I was 18 years old, sleeping on the streets. I, that's one of the reasons why I was on benefits. I went into a hostel here uh, in the UK. I was just angry. I was just pent up because I, it was a it was a struggle every single day. And if I could go back in a DeLorean today, I'd be like, "Listen, just chill, <laughs> relax. It's all going to be okay. Don't stress too much. Try and enjoy yourself a little bit more." Um, that would be what I would tell my younger self. I like how you shared that journey about how you were reluctant of not working for a bank. And so I know today's episode is going to be talking about more of banking industry and how there might be some mistrust. But before we get into that, and even talking about your journey, um, let's start off with the basics on now you've, you, it's time for you to share your knowledge about like what you know about the banking industry. How does everything work? Because you coming from an outsider now actually working and learning the ins and outs, I think it would be great for our listeners to understand how you would explain to somebody who has no idea of how a bank operates. And so like, what are the services that they provide? You don't have to go into everything, but like, how does it operate as a business at the end of the day? um, Even though it provides money for businesses and for consumers like us, but it still has to run as a business. So how would you explain that to somebody? So I, I think the best way to approach this is with context, right? So if you think about the context of where most of us in the Western world find ourselves right now, I mean, the States are doing a lot better than we are in the UK. You guys tend to have, you seem to have got your inflation number a lot lower than we, we've currently got it. We're currently at uh, just over six, 
6.8% uh, roughly at the moment as of the last reporting. I think you guys have got it at 3.2. Now, both of our targets are 2%. And one of the, the things that I continually get um, messaged about or comments that I regularly see on social media is, you know, this is where the bank should step in because here in the UK back in 2007, 2008, the government stepped in to bail out the banks. And there seems to be this this fundamental misunderstanding of how the function of banks in our modern society and not to put too fine a point in it but the banks essentially are the lubrication for for our economies really in terms of the money flow the cash flow the banks essentially facilitate that and i think sometimes people underestimate that you know when people cry out for you know the banks to step in and and be i don't know be taxed or to be fined or for example one that one that i'm commonly getting at the moment is the banks should basically forego some of their profits to help their customers it, it, it's a very, very noble thing to think about. But the reality is, it's almost impossible for them to do that because they are owned by shareholders and they have a responsibility to shareholders. And in this conversation, when you really dig deep into it, you then ask the question, well, who are these shareholders? And the shareholders are everyone, essentially, who has an investment, a pension. If you have anything... Let's take it out of investments and pensions for a moment. If you work in a business, the businesses rely on their banking facility to continue to be able to operate, cash flow, so on and so forth. And I think there's an underestimation of how entrenched and integrated the banking system is in Western economies. It is one of those pivotal things. And the phrase comes to mind, too big to fail. It's an unfortunate truth and a truth that maybe many would argue a bank should never be too big to fail. And maybe there is a fix in the system somewhere. But a lot of the big banks that you will know of, the Barclays, the HSBCs, you know, the JP Morgans as, a, as, a, as an entity, they are integral to our economies. I mean, here in the UK, the financial services sector is one of is the biggest contributor to our economy. So if anything happens to the banking sector, our economy essentially suffers off the back of it. And I think that there is an underestimation of how far that actually goes. I said, if people wish the end of the banking system, you're wishing the end to everything that you know, the car that you drive, the house that you live, how you're funding your family right now. Everything goes away if the banking system disappears tomorrow. And it's a really interesting conversation to have with people um, to try and kind of open up what kind of misconceptions they have. I feel like a lot of people think about banks and bankers as the guys at the top of the banks earning millions of pounds and millions of dollars a year. And like those are very, very few people at the very, very top. When you wish for the banks to fail, you're wishing for the cashiers, for you're wishing for everyone that works underneath those bosses to fail in IT, in so many different departments, right? And when you really dig it down, it's, it's such a fascinating conversation to have. That was a really good um, break them down and I really do appreciate that. So so now we sort of understand the blueprint of banks. Uh, so from your observation, what would you say kind of drives the modern consumer behavior towards them? Because again, we, we're seeing things about distrust and, hey, a bank is kind of being perceived in dislike. So 
from your experience, what would you say is actually driving the behaviors today towards banks? I, th- I think there are a few things. I think you cannot get away from the reality that people see or the perceived reality. And this is the, that, this is the thing that's very, very important. What someone perceives often is their reality. It doesn't make it the reality of the world, right? And so people often see the banks and the financial system through that lens. And the case in point that everyone references is 2007, 2008. If you watch, you know, um, <clears throat> movies like Margin Call, one of my favorite films of all time. If you uh, watch uh, The Big Short, one of my, again, one of my favorite movies of all time. You can't help but watch those films and think, what were you guys doing? And when you tie onto that, the fact that these guys made a t- ton of money, the idea of greed comes into it. And I'm not advocating for one minute that greed doesn't play a factor because oftentimes it will. And this is where we can talk about regulation and whether regulation is actually effective or not. But I think the general public see the banking system through that lens, through that lens of they cause catastrophic damage that costs my mum, my uncle, my aunt, their homes, their pensions. And I think from an internal point of view, having worked in financial services for a while, there is still this arrogance, I would say, amongst financial institutions to a certain extent where, well, you need us. So maybe we don't need to do that much outreach and work to try and rebuild trust. And unfortunately, that is, that's very, I've seen it happen quite a bit. It's very unfortunate. But to lay on top of all of that is the fact that one simple thing that I say all the time is probably the one of the biggest factors towards the mistrust that we see. We don't get taught any of this stuff in school. None of it. We don't get taught, get taught how the financial system works, how mortgages work, how interest rates work, how investing works. Nothing. Debt, nothing. We're expected as adults to be able to make responsible decisions when the banks give us pretty much the information that they need to give us to be compliant. And I think it's the combination of all those factors that lead to the distrust and, and, uh, and the sentiment that people feel as though the banks can't be trusted. I'm glad you mentioned all this because there's a lot of small nuggets that kind of relate to what we've seen this recent bank failures happening now. And so it goes back to like, again, like those movies that you mentioned, I'm sure there's going to be some recent Netflix documentaries or they'll make anything something about like the SVB failure or even Credit Suisse. So can you help us walk us through like what what do you feel like has been the common factor for these failures because it sounds like last time it was a mismanagement risk and so again this is seems like to be a mismanagement our funds that have been put into it so are we kind of following the same thing but just in a different way like how would you walk us through that i think if you go back to 2007 2008 i think there was an element of just undue risk being taken i mean when you really think about the instruments they were using and how they actually operate i mean for even so I've worked in the industry for a long time. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why? Why have you got a synthetic of this going on, which amplifies your risk so large? And then you expect that uh, this is never going to happen. And obviously, obviously, we don't know what's going to come around the corner. And the reality is that the dominoes that fell for 2007, 2008, you could say that maybe you you should have foreseen this coming along, particularly when you don't do you know credit checks on people and you're, you're leveraging in that way. So I think there was an element of mismanagement for sure. There's an element of greed in there for sure. And I mentioned regulation a little bit earlier on. I think regulators, whether they be in the States, whether they be in the US, oftentimes are there as a reactive intervention mechanism in opposed to being proactive. But then as a regulator, 
how can you be proactive and in everybody's you know business to make sure that they're not crossing the line and i think whatever industry you work in there are always going to be bad actors particularly when there's an opportunity to make so much money and so you think about mismanagement undue risk maybe a failure in regulation here that's what really needs to be fixed but even when you start thinking about you know some of the more recent bank failures i mean it's a completely different thing that isn't necessarily mismanagement this is you know interest rates and bond yields going the opposite way in in what most instances make sense you would put most of your money in something like secure asset like bonds right you wouldn't expect that the bond yield would go against you and so maybe there you could say well maybe there's a little bit of risk management which was overlooked there but we don't have a crystal ball so how were we to know that we'll be in a situation where bond yields will go against you if you're holding quite a lot in bonds to the point where you have a, a bank failure potentially so it's it's really really hard to pinpoint but there are certainly um I guess, common themes that you often find. And when you boil down and, and strip out maybe some of the things that we saw back in 2007, 2008, and to maybe some of the stuff that we'll see, you know, even currently or maybe in the future, it's that risk management, I guess, that is is the common thread between the two. I have a quick follow-up on that. So you've been working for Airbnb uh, for a while now. And, and also, I just want to see if you would have any advice for our listeners. So like, if there's somebody who wants to go shop around for a reliable bank, what is something that they should look for now? Because like you said, the banks don't have a crystal ball, but, and also you don't know who are all the staff that's working behind that bank, right? So do you have any advice on like, what are some common, common allergies to see what's a reliable bank? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think first and foremost, you need to, what are you using the bank for? If you're using them for investment services, then that's completely different in terms of the checks that you would need to do. But generally speaking, if you're looking for a bank for your day-to-day -day activities, I mean, here in the UK, we have something called the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, which means that if the bank disappears tomorrow due to mismanagement, you're, you're covered for your deposit up to £85,000. So any kind of um, guarantee that you can get is often a good thing because it protects you. Um, so that will be number one, first and foremost. Um, when I was working in the industry, whenever we would, not just for banks, but whenever we would be looking at a, a company to either bank someone with or to invest someone with, we'd look at their size because size matters. You know, what do you have in your balance sheet? You know, in, in, tumultuous times, for example, do you have enough cash to kind of tie you over? Same fundamentals apply when you're looking to invest in a company. I think that applies even if you're going to be looking to use a bank just for your day-to-day -day banking. Really, really important you look at size. From a practical point of view, functionality, tech, you know, are you the kind of person that prefers to have everything on the phone? Or do you actually physically want to be able to go into a branch to interface and speak with somebody? You know, I don't know about the States, but certainly here in the UK, we're seeing more and more branches, high street branches, so banks on the street closing down because everything's now being more focused on tech and the tech delivery side of things. But that may not necessarily suit you. So trying to make sure that you have a bank that meets your particular requirements in terms of the day-to-day -day usage and interface is, is extremely important. I mean, I'm one of those people that, you know, I did work for, for traditional banks, but I actually bank with one of the new banks now because everything's so much easier on the app. I can speak to someone on the app. I can send a message on the app. I get a response. 
it's so much easier than going through paperwork in the traditional fashion. So those are just a few things that I think are really, really important. Brilliant, brilliant answers. And I think, um, you know, you had asked really good questions. Uh, but Peter, I just want to walk back a couple of steps. And so I remember when, you know, you were sort of speaking to my question, you mentioned a, a key word, trust. And I just wanted to kind of just unpack that a little bit. So what would you say the role of trust and security plays in consumer preferences these days you know we have the we're in the era of like data breaches cyber security threats so is that something you can really speak to because again you know even the traditional banks and the fintechs they have that commonality so i would love to hear your perspective yeah for sure so trust i think manifests itself in in a couple of ways i would say right so obviously security absolutely important you don't want to work with a bank or use a bank that is going to lose your information and there's no protection in your data right clearly top of the top of the shelf let's tick that off but i actually think that trust is a lot more uh, nuanced than just the tech and the protection and the security that you might feel. I think there is an element, and this is, I can speak for the, the financial services system in the UK for sure. I don't think that the traditional um, banks and the industry as it currently sits imbues a lot of trust in people because I truly believe that the general public feel as though the banks are, are disconnected to their reality. Again, it comes back to this perception, right? So oftentimes when I speak to people, people think about banks and bankers as multi, multi-millionaires. Well, yeah, some of them are very, very wealthy. Some of them do very, very well. You can earn a lot of money in banking. But I think that that's quite an important point to kind of pull out as a nuance because when they look at their existence and they may be struggling to pay the bills and they need a credit card, but unbeknownst to them, their credit score is absolutely shot to bits because of something that happened maybe three, four, six months ago because they were struggling. They go to the bank, ask for a credit card and overdraft. The bank says no, no explanation whatsoever, no attempt to help them, no attempt to explain, look, this is what's going on. This is what we might be able to do to help you get there. So go off and do this, come back and we'll review nothing. And I think it's the interface, that day-to-day -day interaction with banks and the lack thereof now because of things like tech that really speaks to the lack of trust that people have in the financial services and system and banks as a whole, because they are just this far removed entity that make money out of you. And I can speak to this from personal experience. I spent years in debt and the only time I would interface with my bank was when they were they wanted something from me and they did they weren't interested on why you're in debt. I was homeless at the time. They offered no help, nothing. And so how can you in that kind of situation and the cost of living crisis is a prime example of this. If you're struggling to feed your kids, put food on the table and your bank isn't there as a trusted partner to help you, even with the basic stuff, explain, right, this is what we're doing to help. How are they going to trust the bank? They would rather get tips from someone like me on YouTube and on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram than actually go speak to their bank. And I think that that's a really big problem. That's a good point. It's like you give the bank some money, right? And you fully entrust them to secure it. But also, why are you even putting your money there when you, you can't rely on them for to help back, back you up for your lifestyle choices or whatever? Yeah, right. So then that's when you have financial advisors, when you have to pay a fee as well for that. It Everything comes at a cost and it just can't. The cost. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll give you a prime example of something that's happening right now here in the UK. So we're in the midst of interest rate rises right now, right? And what that basically means is for people who own homes, who have mortgages, their mortgage payments are going through the roof. Now we have a situation where we, we call them mortgage prisoners. So these are people who may be coming off a fixed rate deal, right? A fixed term deal where they would have been paying something like two and a half percent, for example, right? Fixed for five years. They've come to the end of their five year deal. And because maybe they lost their job or they can't provide proof of their income any longer, but they've never missed any payments on their privy on their mortgage throughout the term that they've had them, be it five years or longer, they're now going into bank standard variable rates. And the standard variable rates right now are eight point four nine percent, seven point nine nine percent. It's 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 crazy to think that we live in a day and age where the banks can't, just can't go. Look, we understand that this is a really difficult time right now with interest rate rises. We know you're coming off a two and a half percent fixed rate. Instead of you going on to a standard variable rate of 7.99 or 8.49, we're going to get you into a two-year fixed rate to help you save a little bit of money, help you get back on your feet. There is nothing at the moment for that for that category of people. And that category of people in the, in the UK at the moment are in the millions who are caught in that situation. So how can someone who's at the receiving end of this kind of treatment, and they find it as a surprise a lot of the time, how can they trust the banks? Because your mortgage payments are quadrupling and the banks are making bank off it and offering you zero help. So how can you trust them? What is your solution to that? I feel like I kind of an idea in my head, but I'm curious to hear it. So, so this is where in the UK recently I was asked to do, I do some commentary for Sky News and some of the, the news outlets here. And um, recently we had something called the Mortgage Charter, which was, it was a, a government initiative where the, the PM and the government went to the banks and said, we need you to commit to certain measures, certain interventions. And they agreed to certain things, right? But there was nothing to address or to help people that I've just described there who are mortgage prisoners, who are going to go from a fi low fixed rate into a standard variable rate. And this is where, if you're going to have government intervention, you have government intervention around that. We expect you to help or at least get people who may be caught in this pocket where they're going to go from a fixed rate to a standard variable rate. We need you to, in to provide them a lower rate on a fixed deal, be even for one year. Government intervention would have been very, very nice, but there was none. Peter, have you ever had, had thoughts of running for like a minister of, of finance role in the UK? No, no, no. Hell no. <laughs> your, your ideas are brilliant, mate. Yeah, that, that is, wow. So kind of still in the, in the same perspective of everything, you had mentioned having had the work experience of being in a traditional bank, but you still use the features of, you know, the modern day digital fintech platforms. Um, so what do you say from your experience or what you're observing to see how are traditional banks actually adapting or not adapting to meet the changing consumer expectations? I think there is change. I think it's slow change. I think that the issue that you have with legacy traditional banks is they're a big, big operation. It's like trying to turn a massive tanker in the ocean. It's going to take a long, a big circle <clears throat> to be able to do that. Whereas a lot of the fintech companies, they don't have the baggage. They don't have the legacy systems necessarily. So they're a lot more nimble. They can introduce things that are more current. Um, and I think that for traditional banks, there is that challenge there fundamentally that the fintechs don't necessarily, don't necessarily have. I like the fintechs because 
it's so much easier, so much more accessible. With that being said, though, I know that there is change coming for the legacy banks and they are trying to do things differently. I've got a friend who works for one of the banks here and their outreach program and how they're interfacing with the community is completely different to where it was when I was in retail banking, completely different. Um, and I want to see more of that. And I think that for legacy banks and, and players in the financial services space, they have a huge opportunity because they have brand behind them. So it's, it's very, very weird. What the fintechs want is they want that trusted brand to combine with the technology to really make a difference, right? They don't have the brand, whereas the big banks and the legacy banks, they have the brand, but they haven't necessarily got the fintech. It's harder to plug in that fintech to legacy systems. And so I'm hopeful that there will be a meeting point at some point where the banks can accelerate. Um, but there, there, there is, is, I think there's a long way for them to go still and just for them to really understand the state of play for, for their younger demographic of, of customers. I like that you said that. I mean, even the comments right there, I feel like it inspired a lot of entrepreneurs to tackle that problem because it seems like a lot of the unicorns that have been out there have always been going against the grain. I know it's tough at the beginning and it might not be feasible because there's a lot of regulations or there's just a lot of, you know, it's, it's hurting their side of the business. But then eventually the power of the people, the demand is there and which makes just makes sense for consume regular consumers will get that lifted and eventually be the new way of banking. I'm actually curious to hear about your vision for the evolution of banking and like, how do you think that's going to be changing over the next decade? Is that kind of like what you were suggesting if that's going to be the, the new way or? I think it's going to be more digital for sure. I think with digital though, there is a challenge um, and there is a challenge around the regulation piece. You know, one of the reasons why I walked away from being a financial advisor to do what I do now is because there was no way that they would allow me on YouTube to say the stuff that I say without regulation pulling me apart and saying, you can't say this. And I'm and, and for me, I was like, I don't want to deal with it. I just want to have conversations with people that I wish someone had with me when I was in my 20s. So I wouldn't have got into debt. I wouldn't have made all the foolish mistakes that I that I made. And to have that conversation, all right, yes, you can argue we need to be a little bit safe, but the regulation definitely needs to move into an era where social media dictates that for you to interface with your customers, which is everybody, you have to have the ability to communicate clearly and in a way that is simple. The one thing that our industry has been guilty of for decades is making this stuff sound way too complex. So that, hey, you need us. And then going back to this mistrust, we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for us to do this for you. So you're the gatekeepers of the information that stops people for people be able to act on their own and feel empowered on their own. It's, it's such a, a backwards way of thinking. So I think the future of it will be digitized, but there also has to be that allowance within regulatory frameworks to allow for a more open conversation about money, products, services, and the basic education that is needed for people to make better decisions. And if you think about it from a banking point of view, what that should ultimately do is reduce your risk per customer. So this is where we need that long-term thing. But I think fintech is going to be it's going to be the future. With the way things are going right now, there'll be very, very few high street banks or branches 
on a high street that you can go into, everything is going to be interfaced on on your you know your mobile device or via apps or so. And so that's where the future is going to go. And as a byproduct of that, products are going to change. We talked about you know Bitcoin and blockchain. The blockchain has a huge role to play in financial services. I, for one, cannot wait for the day. Cannot wait for the day where you can go buy a house and you just go buy an NFT as the deeds and you get rid of the solicitor, the, the conveyancer. All of that is gone. It's just one simple thing that you do and you save yourself thousands of pounds as a result. So I can't wait for that day to come along, but there's quite a significant change that needs to happen within that from a regulatory point of view and from a practical day to day point of view as well. Brilliant, brilliant answer. <clears throat> and uh, so this will possibly, as we kind of go to wrap this up, uh, so kind of going into my last question here, I know when, you know, we were researching to bring you in as a guest on our, on our podcast, I was literally blown, blown away as how well versed you were on from a global perspective on how money and money, how a bit work across everything else. So I think one thing we do share is that kindred spirit in the sense that, you know, I, I live most of part of my, my life in, in England and from moving here to um, the US. So I've had that experience to have seen how consumer behavior works on both ends. And so is that, can you kind of share as to your experience or what you've observed or what you've experienced as well? Um, more like uh, how do financial behaviors and preferences sort of differ between, you know, the US and Europe as well in particular? Man, look, <clears throat> socially, culturally, it's completely different. I mean, I, I, I did a talk about this literally two days ago. And when you look at um, the behaviors and the perception of money, this, I, how can I describe it? The way we view and interface our attitude towards money, very, very different. And there's only an ocean between us, right? But literally, the difference is that large. And I think it's down to cultural and social factors. So, for example, here in the UK, uh, you guys in the States may hear we have our national health service. And, you know, yes, it's suffering right now. It isn't really sustainable moving forward. But what that basically meant is that if you ever needed health care, you can rock into a, a, a hospital and you'll be seen for free. You're paying for it via your tax take, right? And to a certain extent, when we talk about our attitude towards money and our money psychology, it it essentially builds this um, this this state of reliance and dependence. We have something to fall back on. Whereas over in the states, your healthcare system is very very different. Health insurance, you need to be able to pay for that for yourself. So in order for you to have top tier health insurance is just one simple example. You need to be earning really, really well. And what that leads to is this sense of independence. And that that little idea of independence means that just the way we speak about money is just so different. In the States, you guys are a little bit more open than we are here in the UK. I mean, there is something called the, the stiff British upper lip. I mean, it's very, very impolite to talk about money here in the UK. It's changing now, but you just don't do it. And the way we measured wealth in, in the UK was very, very different from a historical point of view. So I think those societal and, and cultural things are the main differences that I see. You guys are way more open than, than we are here in the UK. We've got a very, very long way to go. And I think being able to talk about money in an open fashion really is transformative because it means that it's not this taboo topic that shouldn't really be spoken about. If you're going to talk about it, talk about it around your dinner table 
if you're a wealthy family, because that's where those conversations tend to happen. Not if you grew up like I did in foster care, those conversations never happened. Like if you're not having it at home, where are you going to have it? I mean, just think about that. If you, if you don't have the ability or the courage to talk about money in your home, you're never going to go talk about it in public. You're just never going to do that. And I think that's the main difference that I see um, in terms of the attitudes uh, towards money. But, you know, we can get, we can have a long conversation about behavioral patterns and the, and the impact of our, of our behavioral patterns and psychology on the decisions we make financially. They are huge. You know, research has shown that financial habits are baited at the age of seven. And in my book, I talk about how my first money lessons led to no end of problems for me when I started to make really good money in the financial services industry. Just stupid spending for what? Because, hey, that's what you do. And when you think about, you know, how I grew up listening to, you know, Puffy and Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac and Nas and all of these people, right? Mace, what are they doing when they're wealthy? They're wearing the gold chains. They've got the whips. They've got, you know, they're, they're showing they're showing that outward manifestation of wealth. And so when I started making money, even though I was you know, at that point in my early 30s, those childhood images still sat with me. And I didn't have the behavioral or mental pathways to be able to break that cycle or recognize that actually maybe this isn't a true representation of what success looks like and what money should be used for. And that really culminates in some of the stuff that I talk about in the book, really. It's such a fascinating side to money. It's not just about the paper. It's not just about the number. It's about the headspace of what's in here and being able to recognize your patterns and be able to put, you can't always change them. But what you can do is you can control and manage the behaviors, or at least the the behaviors that the patterns manifest in order for you to make better financial decisions. Maybe that should have been a a rapid fire question, US or UK for you. (laughs) 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 But hey, I'm glad you mentioned about your book as well. Um, I know we can continue this conversation, but we're kind of wrapping up here. So how can our listeners get connected with you? Yeah, so I am on YouTube um, most days of the week on live streams. Um, I'm on Instagram. So find me on Instagram, Conversation of Money. That's probably the easiest way to contact me. Um, The podcast goes out uh, on Spotify, Apple, Google, all of the good podcast outlets. It's uh, every Monday, 6 a.m. UK time. Um, And yeah, I'm on YouTube quite a bit. Awesome. Awesome. And finally, we want to thank our listeners to who have supported us. By the way, let us know in the comments below if your views or perspectives on banking and financial services have changed now. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you leave us a review on where you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to share this episode on social media. Just don't forget to tag us at dapper.dollars on Instagram and TikTok. Now, if you want more gems like this, make sure you head over to our website, dapperdollars.com and scroll down to our blog for show notes from this episode. And last but not least, don't forget to look good, feel good and do good. See you at the next episode. Bye all.